to uh, stop short of the normal hour today. Uh, I don't like to talk too long. We do have a question that was offered regarding chapter 21, so before we get into 22, I want to briefly address that. The question is from Deuteronomy 21, uh, 10. Uh, you'll probably remember that when they went out to fight against their enemies, if it was nearby in the land that God was giving them, that they were to kill all of them, men, women, and children. But it said if the enemies they were fighting were a long way away, uh, they could kill the men, and if they saw among the captives a woman that uh, they desired, uh, they could take her home and make her a wife. And then the rules about it and so on and so forth. But uh, here's the question. <clears throat> it says, it's talking about female war prisoners. The Israelites had been told not to marry Gentiles, Deuteronomy 23:12-13, which we'll get to shortly, and Nehemiah 13:27-30. Please explain why God allowed it when they went to war against their enemies. And I, I kind of skipped on over that a little bit uh, because I'm trying to get through the book of Deuteronomy without too many side trips, and if we get into a discussion on race and Israelites and Gentiles and marrying and not marrying and slavery and all those things, <coughs> they could turn into quite a series. So I don't want to go there other than just briefly to address this question. Uh, there are quite a few scriptures where God does say, don't intermarry with the nations around you. And it must have been for a very good reason that he told them in Nehemiah to separate from their foreign wives and children. Uh, they love those women. They love their children. And uh, they didn't want to give them up, in most cases. But God said do it. <clears throat> now, there was a new beginning there. Uh, they had been in captivity. They came out. And God required them to do that, to start a nation all over again, and to do it in a new and pure way. But why did he allow that intermarriage before then? And I don't know that I have all the answers to that, frankly. Uh, it is a very many-faceted subject. Uh, there are ins and outs about it. I do know he told the New Testament church not to marry outside the church. Uh, that's why we've always had dating rules against uh, dating outside the church. We should not enter into that kind of relationships because they ultimately can lead to romantic involvement and to desire to marry. And God has clearly said not to become equally yoked with an unbeliever. So there is a situation here where there is the physical marriage between the races, and then in the New Testament, it makes a jump to where we are not supposed to, as spiritual Israelites, marry the spiritual Gentiles. It's not a matter of blood there, it's a matter of those who understand and know God's way, not marrying with those who are not in God's way. The reason being, it can pull our hearts away from God. And they're going a different way in life than you are. 
So if you're going two different directions, it doesn't make any sense to try to marry and come together because it will create nothing but problems down the road. As soon as that physical attraction and that romantic feeling wears off, there will be nothing but trouble. And we've seen that over and over and over in the church where people, where God even just called one and not the other, or where people have gone out and married somebody not in the church, which has been done many times. And they brought nothing but grief upon themselves. So, spiritually speaking, there is no question. We are simply not to marry outside the church. It has nothing to do with physical race or blood. Now, the, the question of interracial marriage on a physical level is more difficult than that. It's more involved than that. And I don't know that I have all the answers to that. Now, Christ did say, the question was asked, well, why, why were you allowed to divorce for any reason in the Old Testament? And Christ said, because of the hardness of your hearts, I allowed that. But he said there in Matthew 19, from the beginning it was not so. God intended one man, one woman to get married and stay that way till death parted them. That was his original intent. And I think that we have to go to that in terms of marriage. But when it comes to marrying uh, interracially, there are some indications that it, sometimes he allowed it, and maybe it was the hardness of their hearts as well. But when he started anew in Nehemiah, he said, we're not going to do that anymore. I do not want your hearts led away. Then the next obvious question is, well, what if you're both in the church? <laughs> you know, spiritually you're both Israelites, even though physically one may be Israelite blood, the other Gentile blood. Then's when it gets difficult and complicated. And I don't know the entire answer to that. So I'm not going to even try at this point to answer it. I think it needs a lot more studying. Here again, it's like any other subject. We need to put every scripture we can find on that topic together and come up with God's will for today. So let's leave it at that. I'd rather do that and try to give you a halfway explanation when I'm not sure of all the answers to the question. Let's be sure that we have all those before we try to expound it. I want it to be something we can all understand and live with. I want it to be God's clear answer to the, to the problem and what He desires of us. And then we go that direction, whichever way it is. And it is a, an emotionally difficult question as well. Uh, Saturday or Sunday keeping is more of a, what does the Bible say? And it is not as emotional as who do we marry, who can we marry. <clears throat> a lot of people would be very, very happy with not marrying interracially at all, and that's the way they think it ought to be. Now, if we found scriptures that seemed to indicate that it was the other way, it might make a few happy who wanted to intermarry, but it might make a whole lot of people, black, white, brown, or yellow, who don't think it should be done, very upset. It would be a very emotional issue. So, I think it better just to leave it lie at the moment and look into it more and try to determine from all Scripture what God's will of the matter is for us today.
His will for Israel in Moses' day, in some ways, was different than it is for today. And that's why Christ said from the beginning it was not so. Go back to the beginning and what was done there. And we don't know all that was done there, even racially. Because Adam and Eve, obviously, probably Eve, had the seeds for all the races in her womb, uh, well, in her body, at the time she was created. Well, how did they pair up uh, from creation? You know, they may have had lots of kids, and some of them may have been one color and some another color and some another color, and uh, it was okay to marry brothers and sisters at that time because the genes were strong enough that it didn't create uh, all kinds of problems. So, uh, there are just a lot of factors <laughs> that should go into this. It's a good thing you people on the telephone line can't always see. <clears throat> I think that's a real good place to go to Deuteronomy 22, <clears throat> verse 1. <coughs> now, these instructions through here really can be encapsulated pretty much in one saying. Love your neighbor as yourself, and love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Uh, but that's sometimes hard for us to interpret because sometimes we think what would be good for our neighbor isn't necessarily what he thinks would be good for him. So God outlined a lot of rules here to help us grasp the principle. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hide yourself from them. You shall in any case bring them again to your brother. So you, if you see an animal out somewhere, and it obviously is lost or isn't where it belongs, uh, we're not allowed to ignore that. Say, well, it's not mine, it's not my problem. No, God is making it your problem. Did not God make it Cain's problem? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, you are. Where is he? <clears throat> and God makes our neighbors... A problem, if they indeed be a problem. And if your brother be not near you, or if you know him not. So this isn't your next door neighbor or three houses down. God is expanding this to people you don't even know. They were of the brotherhood of Israel. Or they could be of the brotherhood of mankind. The question is, who is my brother? And in a larger sense, everyone on this earth is our brother or our sister. Because they are part of the children of God. So we're not to go through life ignoring, uh, but to take care of things that come to us where there is a need. That's the whole attitude here of service and love to somebody that might be uh, have a loss being created for him. So if you don't even know him, then you shall bring it into your own house. Uh, does that mean in the front or the back door? His ox or his sheep? 
I don't think you have to take it into your dwelling place, but into your house is a larger term, meaning into your property, into your care. Some people who interpret too literally might have trouble fulfilling this because they say, I'm not taking it home, put it in my house. We do interpret the Bible pretty literally, but there are language and translation things that sometimes we have to understand the all-inclusivity of a situation, not letter by letter, because we have to get the meaning out of it, and that is the meaning of it. Why do I explain that? Some people think in very general terms. Some people think in very specific terms. And we have to be careful. I've noticed over the years that some people will round their tithe off to the next highest dollar, and some people will put one cent. Now, that is not a criticism. That is just an observation of the different way that people think. You know, some think more generally, others think more specifically. And we need both in the world. Anyway, verse 3. In like manner shall you do with his ass, and so shall you do with his raiment. So, with all lost things of your brothers which he has lost, and you have found, you shall do likewise. You may not hide yourself or ignore it. Another way of putting it. I'll bite my tongue on one I thought of, but I'll not say it. Verse 4. Uh, you shall not see your brother's ass or his ox fall down by the way and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him to lift them up again. We see somebody in trouble, not just his ox or his ass in the ditch, but his car. Uh, more of you get your cars in the ditch than you do your cattle. Uh, we get calls around here fairly often. I'm at Hurricane Hill. <laughs> it quit again. Or whatever. Uh, so it's gather your neighbor up and bring them home. Just be helpful, be serving, be giving. That's the principle he's trying to get across here. The woman shall not wear that which pertains to a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do saw an abomination to the eternal your God. Uh, God wants a clear and distinct difference between the sexes. He doesn't want us cross-dressing. Uh, you know, we, we think about it when a man puts on brawn panties. Uh, and, and that's looked down on. But when a woman puts on man's clothes in our society, it's not thought of in that way. But it works both directions. And we need to think about that principle. It's the same thing with whether a woman should have her hair long or short. Uh, God doesn't say how long or how short. He just says a woman should wear it long, and a man should have his cut short. <clears throat> then we have to learn wisdom and how short is short and how long is long. Uh, some people simply can't grow hair very long. Uh, but I guess you just do the best you can in that case. Some men can't grow hair at all. The best they can do, well, that's short. They don't have to worry about it being short enough, I guess. 
but use wisdom and make sure that God sees and mankind sees that there is a clear-cut difference between men and women. God made the sexes that way, and he wants them to remain that way. It's the way he created us, and he wants the difference seen. Or as the French say, vive la difference. If a bird's nest chanced to be before you in the way, in any tree, or on the ground, whether they be young ones or eggs, <clears throat> madame sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. But you shall in any case let the mother go and take the young to you, that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days. So it's a matter of game conservation. There's nothing wrong with having the eggs, if you need to eat the eggs, or to take the young birds if they're too young to eat, I suppose. At that time, you, you could uh, keep them and let them grow big enough. Or if she has a flock and they're getting almost grown, uh, you can take the young but not the mother. <coughs> now, it sounds harsh to PETA, I understand. But God put the clean birds there for us to have for food. And it's not wrong to eat them. Uh, but he wants us to conserve. The young are not reproducing at that point, but if you take the mother's babies or the young ones, she can lay more eggs and she can have another set. So you might take some and harvest them for your use, but you leave her to produce more so that the species continues and that it may be well with you so the next time you need some birds or eggs, there'll be some there. So there again, it's love your neighbor as yourself. He might want some birds or some eggs someday too. So preserve the species. Be conservative. When you build a new house, you shall make a veranda or a uh, basement, a battlement, not basement, for your roof, that you bring not blood upon your house if any man falls off. Uh, if you have a second or third story uh, place, you need to have a railing around it, one that will keep people from falling off. Think of your neighbor, you know. If he climbs up on the rail and jumps off, that's his problem. But you need to be sure that it's fixed so that he won't accidentally fall off and the blood be upon your head. But just loving your neighbors yourself. And it's harder to push him off, too. <coughs> you shall not sow your vineyard with different seeds, lest the fruit of your seed which you have sown and the fruit of the vineyard be defiled. Uh, there are some plants that can mix. Some do not make a good mix. Uh, we have to be careful when we plant that we do not uh, create problems with the quality of the plants or the seeds or cause them to mutate in a wrong direction, which would create problems. So... We need to preserve crops in the best way. Now, mankind doesn't do this uh, just by accident. Now they're genetically modifying them, you know, and putting mouse parts in your corn or whatever they put in there, <coughs> which is clearly against this principle. Uh, God speaks about genetic modification of crops, and this principle right here covers that. 
be sure things stay good and pure and don't get contaminated and messed up. You shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. You either get two oxen or two mules. Uh, you don't put one with the other because one pulls harder than the other, and one has to do the work. The oxen might be dumb enough to just keep on pulling while the mule's saying, Ha, sucker, and slacks off. So, God's saying, be fair. Don't be fair just with people. Be fair with animals. Take care of your animals. Don't overwork them in a wrong way. Don't put them in a position where they have to do too much, which is hard for them, while something else is getting a free ride. <coughs> so it applies in our entire lives. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, as of woolen and linen, together. This one we've debated back and forth for decades in the church. Should we get rid of everything that has nylon in it, or should we not mix any wool or any uh, cotton together? Uh, should we try to find pure silk and pure cotton and pure wool? Um, I think there's a quality issue here that even involves clothing. We should not buy or make cheap, shoddy clothing, and when you put two materials together, they're not of like kind, and they tend to pull and wear and wear out much quicker. So there's a quality issue involved. Uh, it takes time and energy to make clothes. I don't know. It's very difficult to find anything that you buy ready to wear today that is not mixed in some form or fashion. It may be 100% cotton socks, but it's got stretchy stuff in the top. And uh, is that a mixture that's bad? I don't know. I, I usually have the heel and the toes wear out before the elastic does at the top, but not always. Uh, in this world today, without making our own clothes, how, in, how practical is it to follow this? But I think that the idea here is that we shouldn't buy the cheapest thing China makes, but we should try to get quality garments as much as possible. And maybe if we come to the time we're making our own clothing, we need to be sure that we do it in the right way. That one you have to sort of take and run with yourself. Uh, I don't know that I have all the answers to that in our modern day society, but the principle is certainly there that the quality should be and not have an inferior type of material with a, another kind that creates a weaker garment. <coughs> And through all of this, there is always behind the scenes the clean and the unclean uh, principles and those things without blemish that were to be brought before God. Uh, that is underlying all of these rules. To try to do things in a quality way in relationships with people, with animals, with our land, with everything there is. That it be done in a good way that would be spiritually correct and good and reflects God's uh, ideas of quality and of uh, value and purity. So those spiritual principles are always there behind it. You shall make you fringes upon the four quarters of your vesture wherewith you cover yourself, 
Now, there's a principle that's involved here. I've known people, even in the church, who've gone ahead and tried to figure out just how to put tassels on their clothes and, and wear blue. There's more. Ex- there's a, a more uh, complete explanation of this elsewhere. Uh, but I think the principle here is what we're after. The principle might be there with the clothing as well. Uh, do we have to follow that directly to the letter, or is it the principle that's involved? Because I do not believe that God necessarily requires us to wear fringes on our garments today, uh, to the tassels to remind you of his law. His law, by his Spirit, is written in our hearts, in our heads, our minds, our emotions. Uh, when We didn't have God's Spirit when this was written. They needed physical reminders, the Ten Commandments physically on the doorpost, so they could look at it as they went in and out. They needed the tassels to remind them if they were here on your wrist and your hand decided to do something wrong, the tassels were there to remind you, don't steal. Now we have God's Spirit and an educated conscience, educated by this Word, so the Holy Spirit takes the place of the physical tassels. Now, if you don't have God's Spirit, I think you need the tassels. If you have God's Spirit, you most likely don't need them. Because when you start to do something you know this book says wrong, don't you think about it? Doesn't, doesn't your mind click in and say, I shouldn't do that? Sure it does. Because God's mind is there behind all that carnality. And the carnal impulses are there, but the Spirit is there to remind us. It creates a conscious, conscious conscience for us. Verse 13, If any man take a wife, and go into her, and hate her, and give occasions of speech against her, and bring up an evil name upon her, and say, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found her not a maiden. Then shall the father of the damsel, and her mother, take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the damsel's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to wife, and he hates her. And he has given occasions of speech against her, falsely accusing her, false witness, what against the Ten Commandments. And he saying, I found not your daughter a maid, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. When they got married, they were uh, supposed to put uh, a cloth underneath on the bed, and uh, if she were a virgin, there would be blood on the cloth. If she was not, they would there wouldn't be. And the parents kept those for just this kind of false witness that might come against her. The elders of that city shall take that man and chastise him, and they shall immerse him in a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the damsel, because he has brought up an evil name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He may not put her away all his days. So if he takes her and doesn't like her, he's not going to get rid of her that cheaply. Uh, He's going to have to live with her and probably hate her all his life, (laughs) Uh, which isn't a very pleasant prospect. So, he'd better think before he makes some excuse 
to try to get rid of her when he knows better. So he gets fined a hundred shekels of silver. But if this thing be true, and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then shall they bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her with stones that she die, because she has wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house. So shall you put evil away from among you. Pretty serious infraction to marry a man claiming to be a virgin and not, uh, and if she lied about that and it was proved, she was stoned to death. So that, again, is false witness. Maybe if mistakes have been made in this society and a couple get married, there is a responsibility to tell the one that you're marrying, maybe not every detail of the past, but at least let them know that everything is not as it should be. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed to a husband, and a man find her in the city and rape her, then you shall bring them both out into the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's wife, or somebody that he was going to marry, so you shall put away evil from among you. Now, they didn't know if it was a consensual situation or whether it was truly rape or not. If she was in the city, then she should have screamed and yelled bloody murder uh, and gotten help. Otherwise, the circumstantial evidence is that she consented to the situation. In that case, if she didn't scream and cry out and get help, they both were stoned. But if a man find a betrothed angel way out in the country in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die, because she was helpless. But to the damsel you shall do nothing. There is in the damsel no sin worthy of death, for as when a man rises against his neighbor and slays him, even so is this manner. She might have screamed her head off out there and where she was by herself, and nobody could hear, so... Uh, She's given that opportunity, but the man still has to be stoned. If a man find a damsel that is a virgin, which is not betrothed, and lay hold on her, and lie with her, and they be found, then the man that lay with her shall give to the damsel's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife. Because he has humbled her, he may not put her away all his days. Uh, in, in this country... This would have been known as a shotgun wedding. Uh, daughter turns up pregnant. Dad finds out, lines the boy up and says, marry her now. Uh, not the best start to a marriage, actually, but uh, that's the way a lot of them happened. Of course, you know, if these things didn't happen and they didn't do what they're not supposed to do until they got married, you wouldn't have these situations. But God took care of it. A man shall not take his father's wife, nor discover his father's skirt. So, uh, his mother, or even a stepmother, that was his dad's wife or woman, and leave her alone. He that is wounded in the stones, or has his private member cut off, shall not enter into the congregation of the eternal. 
Here again, you have the underlying purity and cleanness. They could not bring an animal even to sacrifice before God that uh, had blemish or was hurt in some form or fashion that was not a, in that sense, perfect animal. And they had physical rules as well. Uh, how did things like that occur in warfare? Uh, things of that nature can happen. It reminds me of an old Reader's Digest story years ago where they had the soldiers that had come back from war in the hospital, and uh, the Ladies' Aid Society came through. They were, hi, soldier, how are you, and bringing them candy or whatever, and, and uh, you know, here's a soldier with a leg cut off, one with an arm cut off or whatever, and they would ooh and ah over it and forth thing and, you know, all the things that they'd say about them having a missing foot. They came to this one soldier and they look at him and, and the lady says, you have all your arms and legs. What's wrong with you? He said, lady, the bullet that hit me would have missed you. So those things do happen, but they would have not been allowed in physical Israel at that time. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the eternal, even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the eternal. So we should have our children in wedlock, not outside. Has Israel forgotten all these rules? This whole nation has forgotten virtually everything that God instructed a nation to live by. Now, out of wedlock children, unwed mothers, it's just common every day. Everybody accepts it, just like they do gays and everything else that is against God's law. So even to the tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the eternal. If we had a child in this nation that was born out of wedlock, did not have a legal father, he would not be accepted for ten generations. Those things were an abomination to God. Do you realize that's a Three, four hundred years they would be put outside of the nation because of one unwed mother with a bastard child. Does it begin to sink in how sacrosanct these rules that God made regarding sex and marriage are? And what he thinks What the world around you thinks and what people around you are doing means nothing. But what God says means an awful lot. That's a pretty harsh sentence. But that's the way he kept things the way they ought to be. The problem is, Israel very, very rarely, if ever, lived up to these things. They just ignored them. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter to the congregation of the eternal. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the eternal forever. 
So a bastard child and an Ammonite or a Moabite were in the same category there. And here's his reasoning on that particular one. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, of Pathor, of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So they had sinned against Israel, had tried to draw them away from God, so God said, don't allow them into the tenth generation. See how important it is from God's perspective that we stay close to Him in everything in our lives, everything that we do, that we don't get pulled away. And that was the big danger and what was happening in worldwide. We were slowly, we came out of the world to a great degree, and then we began to drift back into it. So God blew it apart and said, I'm only going to work with those who will come out. If they don't come out, I'm going to throw them back in and they will go into tribulation. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, the one case of the tenth generation with the bastard was because of his marriage and sex laws. The other was because they tried to pull him away or pull Israel away from God, breaking the first commandment. Both of those were dealt with very harshly. Verse 5, God intervened, though. He says, Nevertheless, the eternal your God would not hearken to Balaam, but the eternal your God turned the curse into a blessing to you, because the eternal your God loves you. There's a lot of encouragement in that. Right here in these very harsh rules, or with harsh penalties for the rules. The rules aren't harsh. The penalty was harsh. Right within that, he says, I loved you and I delivered you from one who would drive you away or pull you away from me and my laws and my rules because I loved you. So I saved you from that. Sometimes we get help and we don't even know it. Where God acts and causes things to work out that may save us from ourselves. It's happened many times. I think we could all probably recount stories where God has saved us from ourselves and helped us. But, he says, you shall not seek their peace, nor their prosperity, or their good, all the days, all your days, forever. So, ten generations, they couldn't come in, and then you were not to seek a relationship with them. Don't seek their peace. Don't seek to make a deal with them or a peace treaty. Don't seek their good. In other words, stay away from them. And that's really what he's saying in the New Testament when he says not to fellowship with the world. Because the danger there is that they will pull us away from the truth. Pull us away from God's way. So he says, don't go out there and seek their good and seek their peace and try to be friends. That's what peaceful is, is friendship, closeness. We're not to seek that. Well, the principle is still very much alive today because we came out of the whole world to be separate. Be you separate, my people. Not connected together in fellowship and marriage and everything. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son and with each other, it says there in First John. 
That's where our fellowship should be. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. I mean, the Edomites are out to destroy Jacob. And God says that the Edomites will rise up and have a great hand in the calamity of Israel here at the end. But they'll break off the bond of Jacob. And they'll laugh at our calamity. When you laugh at someone's calamity, uh, things happen sometimes. But God will destroy them for it. So even though they hate us, we're not to abhor them. There are Edomites in the big banking system and the government system in this country today. We need to be very careful in having a correct attitude toward them. We're not to abhor them. Now, we may not like what they're doing. We may understand what they're doing. But God said he will deal with it. Vengeance is mine, says the Eternal. He says, I will take care of them. You don't need to worry about it. So in our mind, we should not be abhorring those people. We can read what they're doing to us. We can read in the Bible what they're going to do to us. And we can see it happening around us. But we need to be very, very careful that we have a right attitude toward them. They're the children of God, too. And I don't look forward to seeing those people going hungry and starving to death and their children being cut in pieces in front of them. That's not a pleasant thing. Woe to him that desires the day of the Lord. So, we're to love everybody. God so loved the whole world that he gave Christ. So, it's not wrong to read about and recognize what's going on But be careful about our attitude and don't hate and put down people that God is going to take care of for us. We don't have time to waste on hate, do we? It's hard enough to have enough time to love. So there's no time to hate. Christ didn't hate anybody when he was here. And we're not to either. So that's the principle. Love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Uh, That is to be our attitude and approach. Hard to love a guy that's destroying the economy and you lose your house and your job, isn't it? But we're faced with that. But don't abhor them. Recognize if you obey God, he'll take care of you even if the Jewish bankers don't want to. Look to God instead of looking down at them, in other words. For he is your brother. Uh, Jacob and Esau were brothers. And therefore, we are related by blood to them. Now, we are in a different line of the family, but we're related. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were a stranger in his land. You lived there. You were neighbors with them. Now, we're not to go to Egypt, are we, from many scriptures. We're not to live that kind of life, the way of the world around us. But, we're not to abhor an Egyptian. The children that are begotten of them shall enter into the congregation of the Eternal in their third generation. 
So now this was speaking physically and racially at that time, not the spiritual principle. But the Ammonite and the Moabite couldn't come in for ten generations, but an Egyptian could come in after three, so that the Israelite blood was uh, stronger than it was when they were fully Egyptian. Well, that in itself allows for intermarriage, doesn't it? He was allowing them to marry an Egyptian, and Egyptians at that time may have been Hamitic, black people, so God was allowing them to marry white to black. I know you might be from Alabama, but I'm just telling you what God allowed then. Because in three generations of being married to Israelites and producing children, the amount of Hamitic blood, if it was, that was the case, or Egyptian blood, there were also other peoples in Egypt off and on, uh, back and forth. So it may not have all been black or black and white. There may have been others as well. But the point is, whatever race they were, it was not Israelite. So after three generations of diluting the Gentile blood, they could be allowed into the congregation. If a man had married, let's say he'd gone to war and he'd married an Egyptian woman and brought her home, she would have not have been allowed into the congregation until three generations of children had been produced. So even though he allowed them, it's, it's, it's strange in a way, and I, like I say, I don't have a full explanation. While he may have allowed them to marry the Egyptian, yet the children couldn't come into the congregation until the third generation, the blood being purified by marriage to Israelites. So it was creating a problem that was bred out, uh, and yet God allowed it. Now, why did he? I don't know all the reasons for that. So you, you can see just from this one passage that there is a complicated issue on the table that is not easy to answer uh, today. I don't think there's really anything said about it in the New Testament. The thing that is said is, do not marry outside the church. So, this one requires some thought, prayer, further study, um, to understand God's full mind on the matter. Uh, verse 9, When the host goes forth against your enemies, then keep from you every wicked thing. So if an Israelite army were to go fight against someone else, don't bring the wicked home. Don't touch that which is wicked. If there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of uncleanness, that chances him by night, nocturnal emission, then shall he go abroad out of the camp. He shall not come within the camp, but it shall be when evening comes on, he shall wash himself with water, and when the sun is down, he shall come into the camp again. Again, here are cleanliness rules and laws that do not specifically physically apply today, but the principles are there. That if there be some kind of uncleanness, uh, that needs to be gotten rid of. Put it out of yourself, not you out of the camp, but get rid of whatever uncleanness you might have and get rid of it. 
You shall have a place also without the camp, where you shall go forth abroad. Uh, this is a uh, an outhouse passage. And you shall have a paddle upon your weapon, or a shovel, and it shall be, when you shall ease yourself abroad, you shall dig therewith, and shall turn back and cover that which comes from you. For the eternal your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore shall your camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in you, and turn away from you. So if God walked through the camp, he didn't want human excrement all over the ground to step in. He wanted it clean. He wanted everything taken care of in a satisfactory and clean manner. You shall not deliver unto his master the servant which has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you, even among you, in that place which he shall choose in one of your gates, where it pleases him best, you shall not oppress him. In other words, if he was somebody else's slave, and he escaped, there was a reason he escaped. Conditions were not good. Things were bad. So bad that he finally took it upon himself to escape. Now, when you escape from a master in the annals and history of slavery, uh, if they caught you, it was generally a death penalty or hard, severe punishment and more work. It did not go easy on slaves, ever in the history of mankind. So if a slave did escape, he did it because things were basically unbearable and he was willing to risk death or dismemberment to escape. So here again, it's love your neighbor as yourself. That slave may have belonged to somebody else, but it didn't matter what he was. He's your neighbor. And he says, take him in and take care of him. Let him go, not just with you, but if he comes among you, let him choose a place where he will feel comfortable. Because his life has been a miserable mess. So don't make him live somewhere he does not want to be and make his life about the way it used to be, but let him live among you and be taken care of and have an opportunity at a happy life. But God's laws aren't mean. God's laws are designed so that we might all live together in peace and prosperity. And when his laws are broken, that creates problems and strife. And therefore, he makes heavy penalties. So it is not the law that is evil and bad. The law leads to peace and happiness. Breaking the law leads to broken lives, broken homes, broken everything. So God made the penalties pretty harsh. Because he wanted the society to be orderly and happy and everybody have an opportunity of peace and contentment. Isn't it, isn't it obvious that these laws will again be enforced around the world when Christ is here to rule? They won't understand all the spiritual understanding that we might have and be able to apply spiritual principles, but it will be physical people living physical lives, and I'm sure that God is going to go back here and he's going to start teaching them in the very same manner that this is. 
Because if he's going to reinstitute even animal sacrifices, that shows he's going right back to the very basics. And he will make a physical covenant with physical people. And if they then live up to that physical covenant, he will offer them later eternal life. It's a, it's a reenactment of what he did before. He gave these rules to a people, and he would have offered them eternal life later had they been willing to follow the rules. First example was Adam and Eve. Didn't follow the rules, lost their blessings. Brought Israel out, set them up through Abraham. They soon departed from God, broke the rules. They were kicked out. Divorced. Now he has established a better covenant with better promises with his Holy Spirit to give us a better chance to do what so many in the past did not do. There were a few who did. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Enoch, you know, Moses, and others. But it was a very few. And even today, it's going to be a very few by comparison, isn't it? If there were two or three or four million Israelites then, there's four or five hundred million Israelites today. So the percentage of people is still going to be very, very low who will obey God. Very low. But he's offered that new covenant, that spirit, to us. That is, to me... Incredible. Uh, verse 17, there shall be no, uh, it says whore in my King James, but in the margin it says sodomitis uh, of the daughters of Israel, nor a sodomite of the sons of Israel. So here he makes a statement about homosexuality and lesbianism. Uh, and even sodomitis, uh, speaking of the female side, we don't think of that, but that means that there is a part of the body that was meant for one thing and one thing only. Uh, that's when you stretch yourself abroad. That's all that part of the body is for. Period. And in this society, it's gotten where men with men and men with women misuse and abuse that. There are some things the Bible does not condemn that people do uh, in marriage, uh, that some people think, well, they shouldn't do that. The Bible makes it very clear on some issues, and sodomy of any kind is wrong. You shall not bring the hire of a whore or the price of a dog into the house of the eternal your God for any vow, for even both these are abomination to the eternal your God. A whore was an unclean person. A dog was an unclean animal. So uh, they were not to bring an offering. Let's, you know, if you were a prostitute and you earned money, you would not bring an offering or your tithes of that profession, if you want to call it that, uh, into God's house. It's not good money. And the same with selling an unclean animal like a dog. <clears throat> because of the cleanliness and the purity issues that were 
written into these laws. You shall not lend upon usury to your brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger you may lend upon usury, but unto your brother you shall not lend upon usury, that the eternal your God may bless you and all that you set your hand to in the land where you go to possess it. Now, before I was talking about your brother and helping a brother, uh, if you saw a need, and I did mention that not just among Israel, but we have an obligation with even the people out in the world, if they are in need or they have a lost animal, remember the story of the Good Samaritan uh, in the New Testament, where you don't just reach out to your kind, but to a dog, a Gentile, you still reached out. So the spiritual principle applies there. On the other hand, uh, a brother in Israel, an Israelite brother, was closer to you than the brotherhood of mankind around the world. And I think the principle applies here. Uh, we take care of those who are brothers in God's church ahead of those who might be brothers out in the world. Because there's a close brother and there's a brother further away. There's a degree of brotherhood, in other words. Now, sometimes when there's... Uh, a Catholic society or a Mormon society or whatever, people get upset with the Catholics or the Mormons or whoever it might be for taking care of their own first and giving them the jobs first. Well, that really should not be. I mean, the attitude should not be there. What's wrong with them taking care of their own first? Don't we? They might say of us, well, they take care of their own first. If I see one of you stop by the road, I'll stop and say, do you need me to go get a trailer and haul your old car home? If it's somebody else that's not one of us, I might say, can I call a record for you? Or if they're in dire need, there might be a time when I'd say, well, what can I do? Can I give you a ride back to town? That happened recently. So we need to think of those out there and help them where we can, where it's reasonable. But if it's a brother spiritually, I'll look to get you a job before I would somebody else. I'd look to bring you home before I would someone else, because we put our own ahead of the others. So here he's saying it's okay <coughs> to charge interest of somebody out in the world, but not someone who was physically an Israelite at that point, and certainly as a spiritual Israelite, I think this principle applies. If we make a deal with each other over a car or a house or whatever it might be, we should not charge interest. They just pay out the amount, and that's the end of it. Because interest is a tool that can keep you in debt forevermore. Some of you have learned that. Uh, so he said, don't do that to each other. Verse 21, when you shall vow a vow to the eternal your God, you shall not slack to pay it. For the eternal your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin in you. 
We need to be very, very careful about making vows. People sometimes say, well, I, maybe I'll make a vow. Well, God is going to require that of you. And if you make a vow and you don't fulfill it, he will look upon it as sin. Now, we make a vow in that sense at baptism. We do it at marriage. Do you solemnly vow, we'll say, in a marriage ceremony? So it is stronger than your word. means more than just your word. And God takes it very, very seriously. I think we should be very careful in ever making vows that might be flippant. Remember the story when the guy said the next person that walks through that door dies and it happened to be his beloved daughter? And he killed her. She says, can I have time, Dad? His heart must have turned over when he realized what he had done. But he had to live by it. Otherwise, he would have lost the respect of the entire nation. So be careful about making foolish statements and vows of any kind. Now, he modifies it a bit. But if you shall forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in you. That which has gone out of your lips you shall keep and perform even a free will offering according as you have vowed to the eternal your God which you have promised with your mouth. So he said there is a vow which is a very specific thing and it's sin to you if you do not fulfill it. On the other hand, you might not vow, but you'll give your word. Well, he says you're supposed to keep your word too and perform it. But God doesn't look upon it if you fail to live up to your word as harshly as he looks upon a vow that has been made. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, Christ said in the New Testament. The roots of almost everything in the New Testament can be found back here. The principle was simply brought forward, put in different wording, and with the Holy Spirit of God combined with it, but the principle is invariably back here. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, here's one that might be fun. Verse 24. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, then you may eat grapes, your fill, at your own pleasure. But you shall not put any in your vessel. When you come into the standing corn of your neighbor, then you may pluck the ears with your hand but you shall not move a sickle to your neighbor's standing corn. We can wander through each other's gardens here and eat our tummy full if we want to. If they come out and yell at us, you can say, haven't you ever read Deuteronomy 23? God tells me I can eat your corn and your grapes. Gan's got his right out on the fence, right outside his property. Shutting the gate doesn't do him any good. You don't even have your corn patch fenced. Of course, he invites people to come get his corn, and then he has to pick it and bring it to them. That's a different situation. But it's legal to pick somebody's apple or their whatever they grow. 
as long as you just eat your tummy full and you don't put it in your pockets or in your sack or your Tupperware. Verse 20, uh, chapter 24, we'll, we'll carry on a bit further here. I meant to get further than this today, and I'm not gaining very fast. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Now, this is what Christ was referring to in Matthew 19, where he said in the beginning, it wasn't so. He said, Moses, for the hardness of your hearts allowed you to divorce, to put away. And Christ's own interpretation of that was for any reason or any cause when he quoted it there. Now, you can come back here and say, well, a man of uncleanness in her. Uh, it did not necessarily have to be that according to the way that Christ was looking at it. He said, for any cause, for any reason, he put her away. But that wasn't what God intended. And when she has departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Now, even in the New Testament, it, it made allowance for if someone were in the church and God did not call their mate and they were not pleased to dwell and tried to draw them away from the church, pleased to dwell, allowing them to live in peace. If they did not allow them to live in peace, then the offended party, be it man or woman, was allowed to leave that marriage, and they would not any longer be bound in that marriage. God made that allowance. He took responsibility if they were in the church, and the, he did not call their mate. Now, other than that, if there were a matter of adultery, then... The New Testament even teaches you can put the mate away because that breaks the vows, the marriage that were made. Now, you can choose to forgive and continue to live with them, or you have the option of putting them away and not being bound in that marriage anymore. That's New Testament. Here it was for any reason, according to the way Christ stated it in Matthew 19. But there were even some restrictions there. You put her away, she's free to marry. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement, this is getting to be a trend with her, it looks like. Maybe she has some problems, I don't know. Maybe it's just the men. But anyway, if he doesn't like her either and gives her a bill of divorcement and gives it into her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, so if he divorces her in turn or he dies... Her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled, for that is an abomination before the eternal, and you shall not cause the land to sin, which the eternal your God gives you for an inheritance. In other words, if you divorce her and somebody else marries her, and then he dumps her or he dies, you can't take her back. You've shamed her by putting her away in the first place. So God says it's an abomination in Israel to take her back in that case. 
When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war, neither shall he be charged with any business, but he shall be free at home one year, and shall cheer up his wife which he has taken. Now that is assuming that there is prosperity in the land. If they were obeying God, there would have been prosperity. And he would have had money set up ahead of time before ever marrying to live on for a year. Whether it was assistance from a father or her father or his father to give them substance, or whether he would have himself worked and saved up, he was not charged to work or to go to war for a full year. But to cheer up his wife, to bond together. That's a, that's a neat rule. Most people don't get a whole lot done for the first year anyway. You know, they're trying to get life figured out and a lot of things. And I think that this principle applies when Christ marries his bride. He'll come and raise her off the earth, take her up to his father's throne for a year and cheer her up. And then he'll come back at the end of that year's honeymoon and make war with the world. Meantime, down here, the seven last plagues will be going on from the seventh trump for that year, the day of the Lord, while we, if we qualify to be there, will be being cheered up by our new husband. That sounds like a whole lot better plan to me than being left behind and going through the seven last plagues. Why will you die, O Israel? God says. Why not have chance and opportunity to fulfill Deuteronomy 24.5 with Christ himself. No man shall take the nether or the upper millstone to pledge, for he has taken a man's life to pledge. If a man ground had a, had a, a, a mill, uh, you are not to allow him to collateralize either the upper or the lower stone. He has to have both of them to grind the grain. Uh, you would not take that as collateral. So that if he didn't pay back the loan, you would take his millstone, either side of it. See, this is contrary to the laws that were in Britain where you had debtor's prison. You didn't pay your debt, they put you in prison until you paid your debt. How are you going to pay your debt? Laying in prison. You can't do it. It's a death sentence. You stay there until you die. Not fair. God made rules so a man would have an opportunity now, you might take something else as a pledge, something that his life does not depend upon, or his livelihood, but not his millstone. And that's an example. They're even about taking his raiment in another place. Not, you know, he might be a poor man and only got one set of clothes, and you take it as collateral? How's he going to work? He can't run around out in the nude trying to work. So God said, don't do that. If a man be found stealing any of his brethren of the children of Israel, and makes merchandise of him, or sells him, then that thief shall die, and you shall put away evil from among you. Now, they could take slaves of foreign enemies that they conquered, but they could not sell each other as slaves. There again, the brotherhood of physical Israel was tighter than the brotherhood of the rest of the world out there. 
God made sure they took care of their own first. So if the Mormons or the Catholics or someone else do that, don't condemn them for it, even though you didn't get a job. Makes it harder for us if we're in an area where that happens, but it's natural, it's normal. And not only that, God commands us to do that. Take heed in the plague of leprosy that you observe diligently and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you, as I commanded them, so you shall observe to do. Now, he doesn't go through all the leprosy laws here again. This is a summary that he gave them just before they went into the land, remember. So you'll find more details about some of these things in Leviticus and Numbers and so on. So, yeah, there was a whole chapter about leprosy and the cleansing process and all that. So he's reminding them of it. There again, love your neighbors yourself, don't give him leprosy or some other cooties. Verse 9, remember what the eternal your God did to Miriam by the way after that you were come forth out of Egypt. How she turned leprous. When you do lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house to fetch his pledge. You shall stand outside... And the man to whom you do lend shall bring out the pledge abroad to you. So there were laws of privacy. A man's home was his castle. We're getting in this country now to where you used to have to have a warrant to come into someone's house. Now, in some cases, they just knock the door down and come on in and shoot you if they please. It's getting more and more that way. But in God's society, if a man pledged something for a loan, you were not allowed to go in his house. If he didn't pay, you couldn't go in his house and take that which he had put up as collateral. He had to bring it out to you. And if he refused, that's too bad. I guess you didn't get it. But a man's home should be his castle. He should have privacy there. He should have opportunity to let you in or keep you out. Uh, Verse 12, And if the man be poor, you shall not sleep with his pledge. You give it back to him. If he pledged it, and he's a poor man, you forgive the debt, and you give him the pledge back. Love your neighbors yourself. Don't put an undue burden on him. Now he has an oppor- he has responsibility to pay back what he borrowed. And First Thessalonians makes it very clear: if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. If he refuses, if he says, "I'm going to live on welfare, I'm going to live on third tithe, I'm not going to work." Now it's one thing if you can't find a job in a circumstance. But you should be out there finding one, if at all possible, to work. And I think we all understand that. But in a welfare society such as we have today, that isn't always the case. And if somebody's able-bodied and won't work, if the opportunity is there to work, then they should not receive welfare. The United States government often allows them. We've got a couple girls here that work in those departments. But it's hard for them to enforce this. Now, maybe they can be mean at times, but uh, 
somebody's able-bodied and doesn't have a really, really good reason he shouldn't be holding a job, then he needs to be told, you don't work, you don't eat. That's the way God is about it. In our welfare society, if you tried to do that in a welfare office as an administrator, they'd probably fire you. But uh, that's the way God intended it to be within his society. In any case, you'll deliver him the pledge again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own raiment and bless you. And it shall be righteousness unto you before the eternal your God. Now, there's somebody that is truly poor, and you lent to them, and he said, look, take my clothes as collateral. And if he can't pay, give him his clothes back. You know, it's nice to have something to wear and to sleep in, especially if it's cold. You shall oppress a hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of your brethren or of the strangers that are in your land within your gates. So here he extends it beyond just your Israelite brother to the stranger that might be within your gates. At his day you shall give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it. A poor man lives hand to mouth, day by day, and you are not going to say to him, well, that's too bad, you, I can't pay you, you know, two weeks, or you have to work a month before you get paid. And the poor guy has nothing to eat. No, he says, don't let the sun go down on what you owe him for that day's work. Pay him for the day's work. There are people who will promise you, I'll pay you, I'll pay you, I'll pay you, and you keep working, you keep working, you keep working, you never get paid. That is unchristian. It is not right. It conflicts with the commandments of God. So don't let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and sets his heart upon it. That's, if that's all he's got to eat, pay him that day. Now, if, you've, if you're set up on a situation where you get paid every week or every other week or once a month, and everybody understands that, and you're prepared for that, it's okay to pay them on a basis of what is agreed upon. But if he's a poor man, and that's all he has, you pay him then. He's got his heart set upon it. Lest he cry against you to the eternal, and it be sin to you. In most cases, it's a sin not to pay him his daily wage. The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Every man bears his own burden. You shall not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. On a man, even a poor man, you might take his clothes for a pledge or collateral, but give him back his clothes. And don't even take the clothes of a widow for a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a bondman in Egypt, and the eternal your God redeemed you from there. Therefore I command you to do this thing. When you cut down your harvest in your field, and you have forgot a sheep in the field, you shall not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the eternal your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Another place it says... Not that you forgot 
some, but leave the corners of the field. Don't even harvest it all, so that the poor might come and be blessed because of the crop that you made. Uh, and God will bless you for that, it says. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. That's the way they harvested olives. They shook and beat the trees. And so if all the olives didn't come off and you went back looking through the orchard and you saw that, well, that tree didn't get all the olives knocked off. He says, don't go back and beat it again. Just leave it so that others can come and legally partake of it. It's theirs. It's not yours. If it didn't all come off, it belongs to them, God says. These are, to me, really neat rules that take care of those who might be unfortunate. Remember the case with Boaz and Ruth. And he, he saw the knee. He'd left the corners of the field. And he says, you leave that woman alone. Let her take all she needs. Now, he was already doing what was commanded. Maybe his eye had caught her already. I don't know. That's a possibility. And he says, you leave that one alone. Let her have all she wants. i got my eye on her. Uh, I suspect that may have been the case because he was already complying with the rule. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterwards. If you miss some grapes, don't go back over trying to find them all. Leave them there for your neighbors or for the poor. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. Now, this is a little different, isn't it, from where he says, you may go into your neighbor's orchard or garden or field, and you can eat your tummy full uh, legally, and your neighbor shouldn't say anything about it. On the other hand, if it came to the matter of the harvest, and there were grapes or olives or something left, you didn't go back, and it wasn't just for your neighbor to come get. It was for the poor, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. God says, now I'm giving you a productive land. I'm giving you blessing. And I want you not to be selfish and greedy and want everything for yourself. But you make sure that there's something there for any and everyone who has need, and you share. So he's teaching New Testament religion right here in the rules that he made. We were a bondman out there in the world. They were spiritually destitute. Now, God has given us much understanding and true teaching. And what are we supposed to do with it? Are we supposed to go off and just be Christians all by ourselves? No. He says, let your light shine from the hill that others may see and have opportunity. And I do believe that that's exactly what he is setting up right now. Just as the world is trying to greedily take over everything, God wants his people to be set on a hill, to shine to the world, 
And he does want them to have opportunity to repent. Opportunity to do differently. Now, if he wants a physical temple built here in the end, which I think more and more may very well be the case, he wants it set up on a hill. He wants a Garden of Eden, a micro-millennium, if you please, to be established so that the world will have an example of what it's like to live according to God's ways and have his blessing. And that will remain for a certain period of time as an example. And then the world will reject it, and they will defile it. And then God will unleash the two witnesses upon them, not just as a warning now, but as a punishment for not having accepted his proper way. And as that gets stronger and stronger, it still gives them opportunity for three and a half years to repent and turn to God and have the curses lifted. So it will be given to them as an opportunity ahead of time so that they will have had opportunity to see what God can do and accept it and live according to God's way. If they do not, but then reject it and destroy it, he will turn three and a half years of tribulation upon them with worsening conditions day by day and all kinds of plagues, giving them opportunity to repent, even as he did Egypt. If Egypt had repented in any of those ten plagues, and allowed Israel to go in peace, God would have lifted the rest of it. But they never would. The world is going to have that same opportunity. They'll be shown it in peace. They'll be given opportunity to accept. If they don't do that, then the pressure will start, and it'll get worse and worse. And if they haven't repented by the end of the tribulation, he will pull out his elect, take them up for a honeymoon, and turn the seven last plagues loose on the earth. And by the time those are over, they're going to be ready to listen. So you see what he wants us to do? He wants us to develop a circumstance that reflects the millennium. that shows the way the millennium will be. And they will have opportunity to see and accept. But they will not. Unfortunately. Do you see the work that is ahead? We're not here to hide from our neighbors in the world. We are not here to go off by ourselves, and be sweet to each other. Now, there is that element of it. But we are here to set an example for the whole world as a city set upon a hill. I hope that we're beginning to grasp that concept 
to understand it better. Because we're getting closer and closer to it. And it has to be done. God does not do anything without giving fair opportunity and fair warning and space to repent. Is he not giving you and me space to repent? I think he will set up an absolute example of the way the millennium ought to be. And that's what all those promises that are premillennial and the prophecies are about. A dual fulfillment. A mini-millennium followed by a worldwide millennium, if you will. The mini-millennium is small in size and it will be small in time. It won't last long and it won't be very big. But it will be there as an example to point to and say, this is the way walk you in it. Now, here's your opportunity. The whole world can be just like what I have just now created for these people. If you will do what these people are doing, I will give it to you worldwide. And I think that must be preached. Isaiah 41, Behold your God. There is a God in heaven who can do this for you. Will you accept that? No, I won't. It gets in the way of my new world order, and they're the ones who are going to give me peace in the millennium on the earth. They have Obama or somebody that they will look to. And I don't know who body, but somebody. But it won't turn out very good. Do you see the job ahead? Remember that you were a bondman out there with them. You had broken marriages. You had upsets in your life. You had problems. And God brought you out. And he's starting to give you spiritual relief, and he will give you physical relief, not just because you're such a good guy or gal, he will give you physical relief in part as an example to this world of what obeying God can do. And offer that testimony to the whole world. And it will need to be preached to the church and to the world. But here is the work of God. Don't remain a bondman in Egypt. Think about that one and we'll stop there for today.